is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. This episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Detroit. The new film from the Academy Award-winning director of The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, which tells the untold true story of the Algiers Motel incident during the 1967 Rebellion. Starring John Boyega, Anthony Mackie, and Algie Smith, Detroit is in theaters August 4th. Go see it. It's intense, but it's worth your time. Trust me on this. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor and Chief Critic, joined as always by our Editor-at-Large, Ann Thompson, and we're both back from vacation, well-rested, and catching up on all kinds of news that happened while we were gone. Before we get into all of that stuff, Ann, where, where were you for the past week or so? I started out in Russian River, uh, which is like a... Uh, a, a summertime community in Northern California and Noah Cowan, the director of the San Francisco Film Festival, was celebrating his 50th birthday and collected a rather remarkable group of people from all over the country to join him and, you know, people from New York uh, like Tom Powers and Scott McCauley and and uh, people from L.A. like Laura Kim and Mark Pogachevsky and all sorts of folks from the film community in L.A., plus all the people in San Francisco. The usual suspects. Yep. People who have known each other for years on the festival circuit, basically, who work in all different aspects of the film business. So how is the Russian River? It doesn't sound like there's a lot that's Russian about it. (laughs) No. I actually went swimming in it, but I think I was just about the only one. It was muddy and it had stones on the fl- on the ground. <laughs> but it was a great it was a great it was a great thing. And then we went off then I went off to Albuquerque and saw some family and then I went to New York and I saw a play and saw some friends there and it was it was a great week. How about you? Well, I I went a little bit further north. I went to Alaska, which was an interesting experience. There were certainly plenty of rivers there and uh, the shadow of, of, of a certain Russian legacy in its own way. But uh, not a lot of movie stuff going on. I, I went to uh, the Denali National Park, which is a huge open area, and went camping there for a while and stayed in a yurt in uh, Seward where I promptly <laughs> got lost in a kayak after dark. So there's a little bit of a uh, Revenant-style survival tale somewhere in there. Though I did... Managed to work movies in one night when uh, we came back through Anchorage in between uh, Denali and Seward. And I found some people who run the Anchorage International Film Festival, mainly because I just didn't know anybody in Anchorage and thought it would be fun to connect with some locals. And people who live in Anchorage are always happy to connect with folks just passing by because it's kind of out of the way. And uh, it just seems like a pretty interesting thing they have going on there. It's a festival that takes place in December when it's really cold in the winter, so their slogan is Films Worth Freezing For, (laughs) which I thought was really great. And uh, it's just kind of interesting. You know, obviously, it's not easy to get people out there, and it's not a festival that has a ton of resources, but it sounds like there is kind of a cool local community. And the other thing that's interesting is that until very recently, there was a very attractive tax incentive, which didn't bring a lot of big movies to the area, 
but it did create this influx of reality shows. So a lot of those uh, reality series that you've heard of, like Deadliest Catch, you know, they've, they've really developed a, a new angle for tourism in Alaska because people watch those shows all over the country and they want to go check them out. So that was an interesting element. It wasn't exactly, you know, me doing work, but it, but it was worth it to, to figure out that there is a connection even in this big open wilderness to our little world of, of indie film and the way that it operates. When we travel, we often travel via film festivals. So, you know, you would ordinarily be going sure. to Carno, and I've, I've been to Sarajevo and I've been to Carla Vivari and I've been, you know, I've been, to, because of film festivals, I've traveled in places in Mexico and other places that I never otherwise would have gone. It's true. I feel on, on some level, like part of the job is the travel. And so even when you're vacationing, you can't get away from that, that element of just sort of wanting to know how does the culture of film travel to all these different places whether or not there's a film festival going on. One but thing I admire of, uh, you for, though, is that you disconnect <laughs> when you go away. You really do. I do. I, do, I, do. I can't well, help myself. I have, I, have to get right my, I have to keep up with my email or it makes me crazy. Yeah. You have to choose the right places to go where it's, it's, you kind of don't have an option. I mean, there's not a lot of phone service in the middle of a national park or on a, in a yurt on a tiny island off the coast of Seward. Fortunately, what we do is kind of fun anyway, so I did appreciate stepping away and then coming back and realizing there had been good, some good news while we were out. Well, all and the it's festivals actually were breaking, basically. Exactly. We, picked the, so we the, picked the wrong week to go away, Eric. Yeah, was, <laughs> well, for, and, and nobody died. First up was Venice, where we, we already knew uh, the opening night of Venice, uh, downsizing. That would be out film. Right. And we already knew. We already knew that. And then we found out that uh, we had we'd heard that Guillermo del Toro's *Shape of Water*, George Clooney's *Suburbicon*, Darren Aronofsky's *Mother*. And I had predicted that *Mother* would play Venice. A because it was opening sooner than it was going to, right after Venice. And B because he always goes there. He always takes his movies there. I saw him there with *Black yeah. Swan*, and he was there with with yeah, the Black wrestler. Yeah, *Black Swan* played really well. You know, and then and then there's also exactly. Martin McDonough's Three it's, Billboards Outside Emming, Missouri. These are all big festival titles that we might be not surprised to see in Telluride as well. I think you know if you can get do the festival thing, it doesn't seem like a disincentive for anyone to to do Venice if they're willing to travel. I mean, there there are those couple of filmmakers every year you see who do Venice, Telluride, and Toronto, which is an insane. Oh, it's triangular so hard. It's travel. So hard. I once did <laughs> but, Venice, Toronto, but it's a lot of exposure, and that so. was hard. I mean, just just physically, just and you know, to, to do the traveling. All right, and then then we have Andrew Hayes, Lean on Pete, which is uh, the guy who did Forty Five Years, and I'm I'm looking forward to to that and and, and weekend. A new and weekend, which I loved, and Paul Schrader's first reformed. He's keeping going. He's keeping moving, and uh, Frederick Wiseman's Ex Libris, the New York Public Library, which is going to show up in Toronto as well. And I'm also excited. Talk to about see, somebody who's still going. Oh my God, Woodshock, which um, stars Kirsten Dunst and uh, is the debut directing debut feature debut of Kate and Laura Malavy, who are sort of fashionistas. So that'll be interesting. And then Anne Fontaine's Isabelle Huppert movie, Marvin. 
Um, and Nancy Bajerski's, uh, or however, Bajerski's, uh, The Rape of Ressy Taylor, which is a doc. And then we're, I'm really excited about this Netflix series, Wormwood, from Errol Morris, which is a hybrid. It's something where he's doing fiction and doc together to make well, this story. I mean, it's, it's like a it series. Seems like a, it was inevitable that he was going to find his way to Netflix. And I think it's just going to exactly. be interesting to see, you know, how he works with the kind of, freedom you have to assume that that platform allows and the visibility and all that kind of stuff so that that's that's good news all around and then the the toronto lineup is here and uh you know as usual there's a lot to work through it is a smaller lineup as we knew in advance it's 20 percent smaller this year but that's still over 200 it's not like we're even gonna notice It's always yeah, exactly. such a huge festival, but, and we always take off. We kind of skim off the the very top of it, really, because because that's all we can do is is go with the most important stuff uh, at that moment in time. But luckily, we get to go to Telluride first over Labor Day weekend and get a, a head yeah, start. Take a couple of things off the table. We don't know what they all are yet, but but it'll definitely make a difference. And but there's there's plenty of stuff to dig through. I mean, I'm certainly excited to see the film opening, the special presentation section, Greta Gerwig's Lady Bird, which she's been working on a long time, stars Saoirse Ronan. It's an A24 movie, has and really good buzz on it. And it's got some semi-autobiographical uh, things going on uh, about her growing up in, in Northern California in Sacramento. I'm curious because she's such a gifted girl, such an incredibly smart writer and actress, and she and Alexander uh, I mean, Noah Bumbach have, have really worked well together. So I'm curious to see how she does on her own. Oh, no, no question. I mean, you know, look, she she is a cinephile. If you're in New York, you see her at like the repertory theaters all the time and stuff like that, who's well enmeshed in, in, in that scene. And also just somebody who, you know, you can kind of tell has been very deliberate in the choices that she's made. So it would not be shocking at all that that would carry over to, to the way that she directed this movie. I'm also really curious about other films in that section. Uh, David Gordon Green's film Stronger. I mean, talk about somebody who casts a wide net. You just never totally know what you're going to get from David Gordon Green these days. And this is the Boston Marathon bombing that's not the Peter Berg movie uh, with, with Jake Gyllenhaal. And it's just, I mean, it's really hard to tell how that came together, but it, I, I feel like there could be something there. Even more anticipated, at least in, in, for me, is Hani Abu Asad's The Mountain uh, Between Us, which is uh, stars Kate Winslet. Hani Abu Asad, is, this is his English language debut. It's got uh, one of the La La Land producers on it, Fred Berger, I believe. And... Um, it just looks it just looks fascinating. You know, it's it's really hard to tell when somebody makes their English language debut, you know, how it came together. But this is a guy who made movies like Omar and Paradise Now, like really interesting deep dives into Palestinian society. And this is about the aftermath of a plane crash and, and two people who kind of form this interesting bond. I'm just, we I'm just, just really curious it. about we it. Just yeah, I'm just really curious. Because those are good actors, obviously, given the good, you know, the right material, they could really elevate it. And um, Fox is behind it. They're, they're pushing it. So I'm curious to see. The one I really want to see, too, is Denise 
Gams Erguven's Mustang uh, follow-up, which is called Kings, which is in English and shot in LA and starring Halle Berry. And I really can't wait to see it. And then there's Haifa Al-Mansour's Mary Shelley, which I can't wait to see with Elle Fanning and Danielle oh, yeah. Pauly. Um, yeah, that sounds fascinating. I mean, it's a story that's well overdue to be told. So, so and a good filmmaker to tell it. So, and then we have all these carryovers uh, from Sundance and Cannes, kind of making their bigger fall debuts. Which you know, they can they can consume a lot, a lot of time just because a lot of people have to catch up on them. But it's also kind of the next wave of appeal. So obviously, you have Mudbound, the biggest deal out of Sundance. That's a Netflix movie, so we've talked about this before. You know, it's going to be interesting to see how well they push well, that one. Well, they're basically using the festivals as a launch pad. They're using them instead of theaters in a funny way. I mean, if it gets a one-week run, uh, it'll, it'll get some attention that way. It'll get reviewed and everything. But the festivals are really going to be important to, to that movie. And uh, Toronto is it's the Telluride. It's the Venice Telluride Toronto sort of one, two, three punch, you know, creating this special buzz that goes around the movies that are going to really have enough of the right stuff to go all the way to the Oscars. Battle of the Sexes I'm excited about with uh, Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton, the people who made that wonderful Steve Carell movie long ago and far away. Um, and then we have BPM Beats Per Minute, which was in Cannes, uh, which has could be the, the French... Uh, uh, submission for the Oscar. Oscar submission and the Palme d'Or winner, uh, the Square, which which is uh, Magnolia has, and that that could be. Uh, and they swear uh, that there's enough push. Swedish in it for it to be eligible. So <laughs> yeah, we'll it, it, is, it is. A, it'll be interesting to break it down. You really have to look at the screenplay to see exactly what the what the balance is there. But and then call me the, by your name, I'm, I'm which was at Sundance, yeah. of course. Call, call Me By Your Name, I mean, that's a movie that, I mean, it was sort of a surprise that, that, it, that it got the Sundance launch, but it's, there's so many people who are anticipating seeing it now who didn't get to see it at Sundance, and that's one where it's, it's like the more traditional launch. It's a Sony Pictures classic movie. It's a, it's a very evocative, kind of old-school art house love story in a way, very well-acted, very beautiful. Very that's elegiac. And we'll be lucky yeah. enough to go to the Sony fine. Pictures Classics dinner in Toronto <laughs> where we get to find meet Army Hammer and, and, and that'll be we'll fun. We'll be there. The question yeah. is, is how long is it? Sometimes it's like a five-minute drive-by and sometimes it's like you can just have a great evening there. It really depends on how the schedule they shakes down. They usually supply a lot, of, a lot of talent. Then the current war yeah, they're all just kind of there. is Weinstein Co.'s big, big uh, event movie with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, versus this uh, Michael Shannon, um, that was sort of a biopic, uh, and and I, I sort of think of that one as being up against uh, Darkest Hour, you know, that 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 kind of thing, where, where Darkest Hour is going to be the the biopic, uh, yet another Winston Churchill movie uh, with Gary Oldman. Uh, oh no and, question. And then the other sort of period biopicish thing is, you know, Victoria and Abdul with D Judy Dench as the queen. So these are, these are the, the things that are sort of lining up against each other. Yeah, it's, it, it does. I mean, the more that you kind of dig into it, you see how things get really competitive. And at least one of the, those movies you just mentioned, you have to assume it's going to completely drop off. It's either just not going to be strong enough or somebody's going to sabotage or it's just not going to play well in the right environment or something like that. I mean, it's just just it gets really crowded. You know, we already know a few strong possibilities. And then 
Telluride's going to change things, and then little by little you have Toronto, and then there's some stuff that's not even going to play the festivals at all. But you know what I like about this season is that you always have this opportunity to look at the contrast between the movies that are really being pushed for exposure at the festivals in award season, the award season narrative, and the movies that are that are also just for whatever reason being introduced right now that don't have distribution or, or are total kind of come out of nowhere surprises. And Toronto has a little bit of that too. The platform section, which is entering its third year, I think to some degree kind of like the next section at Sundance, Seems to be finding its groove a little bit more. I, think I mean, that's obviously, a little last misleading year, though, if you're trying to compare them, because well, I, I, almost, I don't I'll think it's the same thing at all. Because platform well, no, is very are, different. It's more no, about they, making a fuss clarify. about movies that are going to be bought by uh, acquisitions executives. I, I think that's part of it. But but let, let me clarify. First of all, most of the movies that show up in next don't have distribution. I, well, the they're more the, avant-garde. The they're more artistically dare. Well, that, that, that is true sometimes. That's not I what's going on in platform. Let me, let me be clear about the point of comparison. These are both sections that showed up at festivals when their intentions were somewhat unclear from the start, and they didn't sort of hit the ground running. You know, they, they, it wasn't like the first year that Next was there. People were like, this, this lineup is great. And it totally gels with the rest of the festival. And the same thing with Platform. I mean, it was, it was like interesting to see High Rise, a very divisive movie. It wasn't like all of a sudden people were, were saying like, oh, yeah, this festival has you know, got this new element because they have a competition section that focuses on the way they described it that first year. Filmmakers who were at earlier stages, not necessarily debut films, but maybe at around their third or fourth feature or something like that. And a lot of them were available. But this year is kind of interesting because there's a ton of notable filmmakers in the section, and only two of the films have distribution. The opening film, Death of Stalin, Armando Iannucci's first feature since In the Loop, and uh, Brad Status from Mike White, which is Annapurna and Amazon. And both of those look really promising, by the way, but also it's, it's like these are not you know, newcomers necessarily. I mean, they, but they're not they galas. haven't directed a ton of... They're not galas either. Yeah. Yeah, so, it, so they have Toronto So one thing I thought might be interesting to talk about here, because there was an article, um, there has been a little bit of a, a conversation about, you know, Telluride and Venice have become more about the, the top-of-the-line awards movies, and Toronto has become more about the mainstream launches of the fall, the older movies coming back for uh, more media attention, and uh, acquisitions. And that does seem to be solidifying its identity, and it's not the identity maybe that Toronto wants to have. I think that, I mean, this is always going to be, I can't, I can't see any way that this conversation is ever going to fully resolve itself, but Toronto is in some ways such an easy target because it's so big, and the timing on the calendar at this point is after these other festivals that get a lot of attention. And unlike those other festivals, really, Toronto is servicing a local audience in addition to all these other elements. And so the programming does, at the end of the day, reflect a lot of different uh, agendas, some of which uh, can't be reconciled. Whereas Telluride is smaller, more manageable. Venice can be this, guy, can be this big European festival that is not obviously for locals because what even is a Venetian local these days, you know? So I, I think it's, a, it's, it's interesting because it's, it's almost like there's just no way for Toronto to get out of this corner that it's been painted into where 
it's always going to suffer in the shadow of these festivals. To me, they just seem complementary. I mean, for no, the most part, functionally they go are. To different that, that's absolutely true. Um, but the other way that Toronto does have an enormous impact is on the documentary side of, of the ledger. That, and, that is true. And yeah. so there's about I, I isolated uh, with the help of, of Tom Powers, who's one of who's their top programmer there. Um, about 10 movies that might have a, a big impact on the Oscar race. And it's kind of interesting because this year there's sort of a wide field coming out of Sundance and Cannes. It isn't clearly a group of five that's sort of moving from festival to festival. And some of the films that, that were introduced may end up becoming the most important of the year. But I, I'm very curious to see the Super Size Me follow-up from Morgan uh, yeah. Spurlock, where he tries to run a, 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 a healthy chicken franchise, <laughs> you know, and then there's Jim and Andy. How did we not know this was happening? I know, <laughs> apparently it, it was pretty much under secret. the radar. So, uh, and then we have, you know, uh, Jane, which is coming from Brett Morgan, who did Cobain montage of Hackett's archive material from early in her career when she was younger. And we have Jim Carrey and Andy Kaufman behind the scenes, um, of of Man on the Moon, uh, which which is really footage that nobody knew existed that documentary Chris documentary filmmaker Chris Smith got his hands on, and and then the American movie guy, by the way. Yeah, exactly. And then you have a a a, a, a Grace Jones documentary, and you have this. Uh, movie about the final year of Barack Obama with key access to all of his aides, which is sort of like uh, probably a depressing thing for all of, <laughs> all of us to watch. Uh, it could be Trump. heartening. Nostalgia yeah, trip. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and then Sarah Driver, who many people know in New York, uh, is, is has done her first uh, feature documentary uh, about uh, the young uh, Basquiat uh, before he even uh, got known for his painting, uh, the teenage. And Basquiat. I should also note that the the festival did program uh, the film that I awarded uh, the top prize uh, with my Jerry Critics Week, Can Makala, which is a really beautiful, evocative, almost dialogue-free story of of, uh, of an African uh, worker who's going to sell coal in a different part of his, his region and kind of the journey he goes on. It's really interesting, kind of ethnographic filmmaking. And um, there's also a new film from Jason Cohn who made Mandabala, which was a big deal at Sundance. It's ten years. A couple years ago, love Yeah, this is his yeah. follow-up after after a decade. It's about time. By is, by the way, very very few people spell their last name K O H N as opposed to C. We are not related. So I've been down this route before. It caused a lot of confusion when that <laughs> came out. So. Well, there's lots to look forward to, and uh, but we also have been seeing some movies uh, in real life. Uh, we caught up with Detroit, the uh, the Catherine Bigelow movie, which I um, have to say is an extraordinary piece of work and incredibly powerful. And she's never, you know, someone to underestimate in terms of her chops as a filmmaker. And Mark Ball does his usual uh, rigorous uh, journalism uh, on behalf of what really happened in Detroit during the riots. Uh, but I do find that she, in their earnest and sincere uh, goal of, of making us feel what it must have been like to go through this. And that's what they're doing, clearly, with handheld cameras and really putting our noses up against what these poor people went through. It, it's a rigorous uh, torture to go through. 
I have to say. Well, that was a given. I mean, when you look at just what the story is, I mean, I would say it's not on the level of uh, Zero Dark Thirty or Hurt Locker, but it certainly does show her similar capacity to kind of inject suspense tropes into a story that's also designed to really tell you sort of almost like a investigation into something from a historical standpoint. Uh, the flaw to me with this movie, or at least what holds it back from greatness, is the screenplay that uh, that can be a lot blunter than the way that the kind of suspense is staged. You know, the way that people talk, it's, it's, there's certain things that, are, that just feel kind of obvious. It's not as nuanced as I would have liked. But, you know, it is just so intense. And I agree, it's, it's really difficult to watch these innocent black men being interrogated by obviously racist police officers. And the movie doesn't give you a happy ending, obviously, because these people were not prosecuted for their crimes or they weren't sent to prison for them anyway. And um, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. I, I found it just so riveting that even though it was hard to watch, I, I was sort of in, in tune with the way that it was trying to deliver that message. And, and it succeeded, I think, more than it, than it failed. Well, you it, talked to Bigelow. What did you learn from her that you didn't already know? Well, I mean, she's talked so much lately that it's in movies about to open wide and it opened limited last week. So there's not a lot of a breaking new information there. But I do think it is interesting to hear her say, you know, that she is fully cognizant that she's not the perfect person to direct this movie because she's a white person. And, and that's, it's very interesting because there's no, there's no excuses being made there. It's more just like she had the opportunity to do it. And what, what I think, what I think is notable is that the so-called backlash to Bigelow is actually not that extreme. And I think because the respect for her is so strong and because this happened in 1967 and, you know, the movie could have been made many times and it hasn't. Uh, it's a, there. There is a certain kind of appreciation, even within the African American movie, for the fact that the movie has been made and that it, it came out pretty well, you know, irrespective of who actually made it. And I find that to be kind of interesting. I think it's notable that she she had some really interesting consultants on the film. Uh, she recommended a book to me, which which uh, I I downloaded on my iPad as we were talking, called Tears We Cannot Stop, which is. Uh, a book by uh, Michael Eric Dyson that uh, the subtitle is A Sermon to White America, and he was a consultant on the film. And uh, she just she spoke with incredible detail about reading this book as she was working on the film and how it inspired the way in which she wanted people to kind of feel the intensity of this movie. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, it's like there are some people who make activist documentaries and we want you to get emotionally involved in the message. Bigelow has this kind of, at, the, at least now in this late period kind of stage of her career, this, the activist intent is embedded in the filmmaking in a really interesting way because it, when the movie is so intense, that's how she delivers the message. You know, it's, it just so, leaves you with that. Yeah, no, it, it leads you, you know, completely wrung out and, and, and drained of, of all life, basically. No, it's so hard to watch. But the, uh, the thing that's interesting is that, they, that Annapurna, uh, Meg Ellison's company, tried to uh, sell this project and get other people to release it and finance it, and, and no one came through. Uh, the way they wanted them to, and so they ended up financing it and releasing it themselves and starting an entire distribution company, which
which is a very challenging and difficult thing to do. One story I did this week on broad green uh, highlights the uh, challenges in this marketplace where even companies like Weinstein, uh, you know, are facing, uh, you know, having to figure out how to evolve in order to survive. And and uh, Broad Green has laid off its uh, production staff and is trying to revamp and figure out how they can stay in business, basically. Um, right. So uh, that's that's so Annapurna. I wish them well, but uh, sometimes having really good taste and you know backing incredibly gifted filmmakers with challenging material is not the road to uh, uh, riches. But luckily, Megan Ellison can well, afford it. Conversely. Yeah, she can she can afford to to not always hit the mark in that words. I mean, to, to play devil's advocate here, when A twenty four came onto the scene, I guess those people kind of knew what they were doing. But it that that was a well funded company that was taking some risks in ways that seemed kind of weird, and a lot of movies didn't totally work. It's not like Under the Skin, even if it has a cult following now, is some kind of smashing success. But after like a two year incubation period, essentially they seemed to find their groove. So you know. Broad Green never got there, but I, Annapurna seems like at least it's driven by some really sincere people who are also embedded in the film community in a way where it's like, you know, maybe they, they could really try to figure this one out. So, you know, not necessarily on the first movie that they do it with, but uh, th there will be more to come. And we know that at Sundance they were bidding on movies too. They wanted to buy patty cakes, so... Yeah, we'll see how they do. I mean, the next they've they've hired some good people. Uh, Mark Weinstock knows what he's doing. Their marketing guy, uh, Adrian Bowles, came over from from Focus. While Focus is sort of overhauling its marketing and and distribution apparatus, uh, so there's a lot of movement in the uh, in the force, as they say, uh, right now. Um, and then the other uh, the the other thing that's coming up uh, as well is uh, Dark Tower. The Stephen King uh, movie, and even though I'd heard it was really bad, I wanted to see it anyway, which is interesting. And I think the reason I wanted to see it anyway, I like Stephen King, I like Idris Elba, I like Matthew McConaughey, and I like movies like this, and I found myself appalled at how cheesily it was made. It looks like they really pulled the plug on all the visual effects, for example, which are so bad. And it looks terrible, and it's ugly, and it's sort of been reduced. It's as if they had a rich stock, and they reduced it down to some very generic kind of thing that isn't uh, nearly as interesting as the original. But um, I bet it does well anyway. Well, did you read the books? Did you I, read the books? Uh, I didn't read all of them, no. A lot of people haven't. I mean, I, I was like reading review after review of people who are just saying, you know, sort of full disclosure, I haven't read the books, and this movie's well, kind of Well, there's a lame. lot of them. <laughs> I, so I, I think, I, well, I read I've read them, many, many but, Stephen King books, but... Yeah, is, you know, but yeah. I think what's interesting about the Dark Tower franchise, or the, the books, and they also did some comic books that kind of... Explore, expanded the world a few years ago is that even these diehard Stephen King types, you know, a lot of people read, you know, like the 80s books and you can power through these things even when they're really long, but Dark Tower is just such a strange thing because it's just hodgepodge of western sci-fi tropes and it's even diehard Stephen King people don't always necessarily take the plunge. I really enjoyed it because I, I like the genre element of it. It's sort of a, uh, it's got just it's, it, he takes it wherever he wants to. It just feels like this completely uncompromised thing and the idea of stuffing it into 
a feature-length movie is so unthinkable that it's kind of funny that this one is actually relatively short. It's like 90-some-odd minutes. No, I didn't think it was nearly as bad by. as... It, no, the stuff with the... No, I think Idris Elba as the gunslinger okay. is actually really good, and the kid is good, and the stuff at the beginning when yeah. he's trying to deal with his visions and all of that stuff, that, that, that sort of works. And, and, but it's, yeah, it's the I visualization the of the world. Yeah, he, he, he kind of fell down there, I think, in terms of visualizing the world. It, it, it could have been, it could it have been better. It's, it's a flawed movie. I, on some level, I think, I, I didn't, you know, Roland, the gunslinger character, who's like kind of sort of from the Old West, but sort of from like a Game of Thrones fantasy world. Or an Arturian he, knight, if you like. Yeah, exactly. That, that, there's an element of that, too. He His wasn't bullets come as, from King Arthur's uh, day. <laughs> well, I just want to say, it's important to point out, though, he, he wasn't envisioned as an African-American or, 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 or a black character and and the cast Idris Elba I would say with the kid who's actually not a super interesting character like why not make it you know a woman or, or do, do something a little bit more interesting with the kid because on some level he's not he's not that exciting we've seen that story since sure. you know the we've EC days all of all these stories kind of like, that's the problem yeah so I felt this. like maybe they could have shaken that up a little bit and that would have made a difference because Idris Elba really kills it as this character and the he's kid brave. is just not exciting enough to be I mean why is he so special that he has some power with his mind he's just some kid and then McConaughey is, is just he's, sort of he's fine you know he does what he does he's okay he's just they, they, they took what should be a very menacing villain and kind of made him cheesy so there are things about it that are just like underwhelming I guess on some level but the the contrast the juxtaposition of uh, the Arthurian legends, like the, the way that you were describing it, and the sci-fi, Western, steampunk stuff, and then contemporary New York City is really cool. I like that. Mm. Like at some point, the gunslinger winds up in New York, and it's like last action hero, but actually a little bit more enjoyable My because it's like line it's, in the whole thing is when he takes. Uh, he he doesn't know, he doesn't listen, and he takes all, he's hurt, and and the kid takes him to the hospital, and he downs all the vitamins and painkillers all at once, and the kid is sort of telling him. Yeah, there's a bunch of jokes about it. And he says, I haven't felt this good in years. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I know. There was another part where where they're planning to go to Earth, and the gunslinger's like, are bullets rare in your world? And he's like, you're going to like Earth. (laughs) I mean, there's like these little glimpses, I mean, and that's the way that I think a lot of reviewers have been describing it. You see the potential that's there, and it just never totally gets there. It but ends I wasn't up being generic, and and that's what you don't want. But I I almost wonder if it, if the mythological power of it, there is a certain, it has an elemental kind of of of, of power that that audiences might respond to. I'm curious to see how it does. So we're rolling along. The fall season's just going to keep coming closer and closer, and, and most of the you know, big summer movies have now shown. Dark Tower is kind of the last of them. But next week we can talk about The Glass Castle, Destin Daniel Cretton's long-awaited follow-up to Short Term 12. We got Ingrid Goes West opening up. And, you know, probably something else is going to happen. And we'll find, we'll find something else to talk about. But we just got a couple more weeks. And before you know it, we'll be in Colorado talking about all these big new fall movies. Okay, so until okay. then, and until next week, have Bye, a good Eric. one. Time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. 
You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.